Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 102. Jeez, saying those numbers, 102, starting to add up. Hundreds, hundreds <laughs> of podcasts now. And let's remember, in this weekly podcast, I discuss what athletes need to be in order to achieve their ultra-endurance goals. Need to be, need to do, right? Be is our mindset, um, how they want to go about their days, how we sort of approach this endurance training, which is different than most training, and what we need to do, how to train, what key ingredients to have in your training, and also fueling and hydration, all those little important pieces so that the training you're doing, you can actually adapt, absorb, and feel better from. This is a podcast primarily for my athletes, the ones I coach, but most of the discussion in here is applicable to almost any ultra-endurance athlete across a variety of sports and spectrums. I've found that the topics that my athletes ask about or comment on in the training logs um, or want me to discuss in more depth are what most ultra-endurance athletes are interested in, in as well. And not necessarily that you are already that ultra-endurance athlete, but the endurance athlete and ultra-endurance athlete that you want to become. Can I do it? I'm curious how this will progress. Where am I going with this? How can I train like that? What does that look like? What do the hours look like? What kind of workload am I looking at? How can I balance it all? But with that, also keep in mind that this training, and I come across this quite often in my coaching as well as in topics on this podcast, I sort of, it's the elephant in the room. And that is, this requires work. This requires hours, lots of hours, lots of volume, right? And the training around this is hard. It's hard and we're setting priorities and um, making things essential in our everyday to understand, well, this is important to me. This brings out a better version of myself. When I have my athletic version as part of my day-to-day, it makes my professional version and it makes my family version better as well. You know, um, a lot of times I work with athletes that have written me or have um, introduce themselves as well. Now that my career has um, sort of slowed down a little bit, I'm at a certain age that I want to pull back from whatever it is, whatever endeavor it is they were in, whether it's in finance or owning companies or um, it could be a, a medicine or a legal profession. I definitely have a few of those that they now want to pull back and focus more on the training and their bodies and time. And I think that's commendable and I think that's great, but I also want so many more people to understand even while they're in the biggest um, growth phase of their professional career or their family, that's still expressing your athletic self and the best current version of that, which is very important, the current version, um, that is an integral part of being the best overall version of yourself. If you are um, suppressing something or putting something aside, and I understand that it can't have the same priority or importance in our day-to-day when other things are um, at a sweet spot or require our attention, family, kids, career, and so forth. I get that. 
but still doing something athletically every day, every week. That's still representing the best current athletic version of yourself. And I fundamentally believe that there's a balance that we can all strike. I don't care how busy you are, whether you're on private jets around the world and you have responsibilities, or you have 10 children at different ages with different requirements and you have to be everywhere all the time. <clears throat> Finding time for yourself, for your athletic self to um, represent you at some point during the day I fundamentally believe is so important. And that's right, that's my mission, is to bring out the best athletic version of you, the athlete, at all times, whether it's at an elite professional level, right, the, the best version of yourself, where I've talked about if I took, um, you know, as a swimmer, I took Michael Phelps's head and put it on your body, how do we close the gap, the differential with what you're getting out of it versus what Michael Phelps would get out of your body? Because that right there is experience plus mindset plus confidence plus routines plus um, habits that you can close that gap and truly bring out the best version of yourself. If you take a world-class marathon runner, right, Meb Kaflisi, and put his head on your marathon um, prepped body, what would he pull out of your body? No, he might not go 203 or 204, of course, with your body. But what could he do? If you're typically a 320 marathoner, could he run 257, 255? I think he could. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. That's how much the mind and the best athletic version that lives within us can come out. And so, and the same thing in triathlon, we can say, what would Chrissy Wellington's head on your body bring out in you, right? Would she, how would she swim with your body? How would she bike with your body? How would she run with your body? How would she put it all together and pull the best version of you, the triathlete out of you, how and that differential is truly what we're working on. And that's, that's from an elite athlete standpoint. And for those of you that want results and performance and growth and qualification for Kona and then Kona results or marathon results or whatever it is, or swim results, etc. But then there's also the reality of our day to day. And that is our athletic self that lives with us in our busy part of our lives where we don't have time for the big athletic achievements, events, goals, performance, results, podium, but we want to stay connected. We want someone, not someone, some part of our athletic self represented in our day-to-day -day lives. Because as you've heard me all say, it's part of who we truly are. We are all all of us as human beings, part of who we truly are is an athlete. There is an athletic self in all of us. Under all those layers, there is an athletic self. And as I entered into this topic with that we all have to sort of 
not man up, that's the wrong term, but sort of choose how we want to go about this training. It is difficult and there's minimum hours required for some of these big adventures. And there is a requirement to sort of put other things aside um, and prioritize our day into the three categories, the three buckets, the three-legged stool, right? How does it all fit? Is it part of my training, meaning my athletic self? Is what I'm doing right now part of my professional career work self? Or is what I'm doing right now part of my family, um, social, personal self in that respect? And of course, no, we don't want to be super rigid and not fall and any time outside of those three categories. Um, there is downtime and there is mental relaxation time and there is um, recovery time. I get that. But if the other time, the watching TV time or wasting time at other things or unproductive time is increasing too much and it's compromising the other three, then I would challenge all of you or urge any of you to take a closer look at how we're prioritizing our days. So, but that also comes up. You have to ask yourself, two fundamental questions. First, do I really want to be better? I mean, that's a hard question for many people. Yes, you sign up for events or you do these events and you want to be fitter and healthier, but do you really want to do better and the work that requires better and being a better version of yourself? And presumably for most of you, the answer is yes. But if you're looking to improve because, say, you want me to um, urge you on or you feel that it's something you should be doing because others are doing it, you have to be honest with yourself about that. And there's many examples where you wanting to do better isn't necessarily your only motivation. Um, is it a way of expressing your ego? Um, and I don't say that ego in a negative way. I say it more of expressing a certain self-validation need, right? Instead of ego or not having an outlet, let's say professionally or family-wise to, to validate yourself and needing that. That's, I'm not saying one is good or bad. I'm just saying understand what it is that motivates you on why you're doing these big hours. And if it's not the right reasons, you'll find that doing the big training for this, that finding the conviction, the commitment, the perseverance to do this is very difficult. So yes, it has to be, or it doesn't have to be, but it should be um, strongly um, come from inside that you really want to do this, that you're really curious about figuring this out, this best athletic version of yourself, this endurance version of yourself, which in general, I think is the best athletic version of ourselves anyway, the endurance version, but that's my opinion. But throw into that, that's what, what you want to be curious about, what you can achieve, creating that new normal. Who can I become with this level of fitness that I've never been at before? For so many of my new athletes, I say, 
I want to take you to a level that you've not only never been that fit before, fitter than the course, but then fitter than the course means you're enjoying your day, you're taking it in differently, you're experiencing the event differently, the adventure differently, the experience differently, right? Doesn't mean you won't fatigue, doesn't mean it won't be difficult, but the fact that you're fit enough to take it on and to fully embrace the challenge that's what makes the adventure exciting. Barely surviving, slogging through it, being miserable, walking, um, feeling overwhelmed, feeling out of your league or, or out of your abilities and capabilities. That's not a fun place or a motivating place or an encouraging place to do ultra endurance sports in. That means you don't stay in this sport or in this arena or in this activity or in this lifestyle very long. And you, you, you burn out, quite honestly. And then the second part is, or no, with that, that first part with understanding why you're doing this is understanding that change will happen only if you, you the athlete, truly are interested and then committed to it, right? That, that understanding that do I really want to be better? How much better do I want to be? And a lot of times that ties into performance, but Better can also mean a better version of ourselves. Do you really want to do better? Do better in nutrition. Do better in mindset. Do better in connecting myself with nature and how I'm experiencing my next event versus just sort of head down and, and, and forcing myself through it with um, uh, not anger, but sort of, a, a sort of I'll show them aspect. What is it? How do you want to do this better? How do you want to display a better athletic version of yourself? And then secondly, are you really willing to feel the discomfort? And this is back to the hours needed for when we sign up for these events, the commitment needed. Like a lot of people, like I've said before on the podcast, sign up and it sounds glamorous to do a 50K. It sounds glamorous to do a 50 mile or a half Ironman, an Ironman, um, an open water swim, a, you know, any type of um, ad adventure that takes many hours and is in a beautiful location. I constantly get inquiries and athletes who have these great ideas and I love it. But then once we sort of lean into what the training is or would be like, then things get a little squirmy and not squirmy that they, um, that they aren't capable, but it's more, are they finding the time to consistently, not just two weeks, not just three weeks to do the training, but two months, three months, six months, right? A year of consistent training in order. It, it takes that. If you're signed up for Ultraman next year, it takes eight, nine, 10 months, months to get your body prepared for the rigors of the simulations, let alone the event and the load. And again, sure, there's other ways to skin that cat and get through the event, but not experience it the way I just described, where you're fully in it and you're fully living it, and you're fully feeling it, and you can actually manipulate yourself on the course. You can be an athlete that day versus a participant, right? 
And so that's what I was just going to say. Are you willing to feel the discomfort of trying things that don't work right away? That's what training is. That's truly training versus exercise also. I mean, it's a big component. It's not the only component, but are you willing to feel the discomfort of trying things that don't work right away? Learning anything new, this training, this endurance training, zone two, fat adaptation, how we go about this, these hours, adjusting your schedule for that, fueling, fueling like an endurance athlete because your needs go way up and you're doing it day after day after day consistently. That is endurance training and that is new learning and learning anything new is inherently uncomfortable so many people say to me i i didn't know i needed to eat that much oh there's no way i could eat that much yeah it's uncomfortable you have to learn how to do it you have to learn how to go about it and learn for you because there is no magic formula right so be prepared to feel a little awkward Be prepared to make mistakes. Be prepared to feel embarrassed or ashamed, especially if you're used to succeeding. So many of us, especially in this athletic world of having done other things in that athletic world in our regular type A success-driven, quick-fix, hack world, know that we can apply ourselves to things pretty quickly and see success see results, see growth. But in the endurance world, as I've talked about a hundred of these 102 episodes about, is different. It takes longer. It's a slow grinding approach and grinding not necessarily from a negative standpoint, but just grinding that the results don't just pop up. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of failure. It takes a lot of running into basically a wall of not understanding or seeing the results that based off of the work I'm putting in. The work today might not pay off for another two, three weeks. Or I might not see the outcomes of my zone two training and running and biking until eight, nine, 10, 12 weeks from now. And so, yes, it is um, annoying and you feel embarrassed or ashamed in your training when all your buddies are like, dude, what are you doing back there? Like, I thought you hired a coach to, to get better at this. And what are you doing back there? Like, this isn't ridiculous. Or as how many athletes send me notes of, I have people who don't even clip into their pedals or who barely know how to run or this and that passing me. Yes, it's that. That, that usually is a sign that you're doing it right. But if you remain committed through all of that, you will get better. It's a process and sometimes way longer than we anticipated. And it's work and it's difficult and it's frustrating. But that's why endurance training and endurance events, the payoff, the success of having done it and felt good and feeling good doing it is so deep and so powerful, and so long-lasting, and enjoyable. So, but uh, that is just a longer insight into um, one of the many, many reasons and ways to think about this endurance training as we discuss so much here on the podcast, and as I dive into some topics for this week. So uh, what do I got this week? Well, um, feeling terrible and awkward on rest days 
and why we have rest days and what rest days feel like for most athletes. I dive into that a little bit. I answer an email about swimmer shoulder and I talk about swim technique and swim intervals and swim pacing and things like that. So there is a bigger swimming component in this one today or on this podcast. The big thing I talk about is fueling for training. Um, It is constant and it is a continuous comment I have for so many athletes um, in so many different ways that it comes up. But understanding that as an endurance athlete, our needs are up and how we fuel needs to change and when we need to fuel and how consistently we need to fuel needs to be addressed and changed and how zone two aerobic training and how it burns fat and how it helps us um, burn fat. But if we're focused on the zone two aerobic um, aspect, we can actually turn the brain off when it comes to those types of nutrition questions and just continue on with our um, heart rate focus and allow the body composition to take care of itself. And then finally, I talk about some marathon training tips. Oh, you know what's even funnier? Not, it isn't. I don't think it's that funny, but um, I do talk about peeing while running, peeing on the bike, peeing while swimming, because it is a question that came up by one of the listeners. So I hope you enjoy this episode 103. And um, as always, feel free to send me an email of what you think, of questions you have, what you like, what you don't like, topics you think you'd like to hear about, people you would like to have on, um, suggestions for improving the podcast, things I can do better, any of that. And um, yeah, enjoy 103. Thank you so much for listening. Many athletes comment in their training logs about how they feel the day after a rest day, that they feel off, that they feel unsettled, that they can't reconnect, that it feels as though they shouldn't have had a rest day or they should have trained easily or something like that, easily. (laughs) They should have had active recovery or low heart rate work or continued on with the string of training that they were doing. The problem around that is that is exactly why we need a rest day. For so many of us, the fog of fatigue and how our bodies just in that continuous mode of training is um, a sign of lack of adaptation, lack of recovery, lack of absorbing the workout. And just like any other Addiction, the day you stop, the days you stop, the hours you stop, feel the worst. Your body is yearning for it. It has been used to doing that mode of sensation, feel, burn, signaling, and taking a day off is quite common um, that on the next day, or taking two days off, or taking a few days off, that the next day you feel those withdrawal pains, that you feel that disconnected. Now, it doesn't quite have the um, uh, repercussions and sensations of true withdrawal from addiction, but there are some very, very similar reactions. And in most cases, when the body is that unsettled, and feels that disconnected from itself from one day off, 
it actually means we need more days off. That means the body is still searching for some sort of rested state and that it is still signaling that it did not get enough recovery, enough sleep, enough refueling. And it's a, it's a very common occurrence for endurance athletes. So what is the lesson in there? Well, one, know that this is what is happening and actually you feeling that um, unsettled and disconnected and awful is your body sort of letting you know that it is that fatigue, that it is that um, unsettled, and that it is not adapting and absorbing the training we are looking to do. Now, that doesn't mean you need to always take two, three, four more rest days. But what that means is, is that you maybe look at your week ahead and look at the past week and sort of get a handle on, am I getting enough sleep? Am I fueling properly, as in eating properly, not during, but during, um, in my recovery and in my in-between time of training hours? And am I going easy enough so that post-intervals, post-prescribed workload, I am shutting it down and allowing my body to absorb the work it has done? So many of us finish a training um, window a prescription and a workout and quickly move on into a busy, busy life and day and go, go, go. Now, so much of that is incorrect from exercise physiology um, and physiology in general, meaning that when you go from the stress of training into the adrenal stress of life, which is keeps us at fight or flight all day long because we're busy with projects and work and children and other stresses and they are not maybe the textbook stresses that you describe or that you understand them to be but they still keep us on our toes they still keep us on alert they still keep us on edge we need to remain focused aware cognitively awake that's all stress and so not having an opportunity post the physical stress of training in order to absorb the adaptation, the workload, to really have it become a stimulant versus just another stressor, really limits the opportunity for us to become better athletes, better performers, to have the training adaptation. Now, I understand that we can't just come back and take a nap or sit around and eat or just chill out. I get that. But the more you know as the athlete that this is what's happening with your body, the better you can start making small adjustments and finding small windows to maybe have more rest and recovery and allow the work that you're putting in, the sacrifice, the time um, that you're putting into this training to be adapted, to be absorbed. And the number one way for that is sleep. For anybody to say that they are an endurance athlete and they get less than seven hours of sleep consistently means that they are spinning their wheels in a big time way with regards to this training. Sure, could they? can they get through the event? Sure. Can they get, do a little bit better? Sure. But remember, my entire job as a coach is to bring out the best current athlete version of you. And the best 
current athlete version of you means that there's an opportunity inside you, the, the athlete within you, to be better. And that is better via sleep and recovery. And so understand that from that rest day, if you are feeling that connect, disconnected and you are not feeling, wow, that was a good rest day, I really needed that, Sure, the warm-up might take a little bit longer, but then you settle in. If you're not feeling that and you're feeling so disconnected and irritable and um, off and regretting the rest day, the next day after it, that means you should look at your week ahead and maybe figure out how to recover better in the windows that you have. Maybe add some more sleep. Maybe put some time aside to get better sleep. Maybe... Think about fueling more, which will be a big theme on this week's podcast. And in general, understand where are my little windows where I can become a better athlete by recovering, adapting, absorbing, refueling, re-energizing in order to have not only a better next workout, but a better overall week to absorb the training into my next rest day. And speaking of rest days, I just had four four of them off. Um, It was spring break and we went to Southern California for my son's skateboarding competition and we threw in some vacation days, beach days with that. But the reason I bring that up is because at no point during the four days did I get irritable or annoyed or upset because I was not training. A, I knew I had a pretty good string of consistent good adaptation, um, good uh, quality training for the two, three weeks prior, but also, and I know that I'll string together another two, three good weeks after, but the point was more that the sleep and the rest and the body felt good doing nothing and allowing that to happen. And for anybody to claim, well, that's just you, and I, I react differently to that, um, I would challenge that because I've been there. I've also had plenty of workouts and, uh, days and vacation days and rest days where I feel awful. I agree, and I want to do something, and there's a lot of my inner voice that has to continue to talk to me to say, no, take the time, recover, rest. Um, And then I've also cheated on many days where I just go out for an easy spin or an easy swim or whatever that may be. But over the last mm, six, seven years, understanding that if I feel good on a rest day, I timed it just perfectly. If my athletes write me in their logs that their rest day was A, they needed it, they were excited to have it, see it on the calendar the next day, and that they were pretty crispy on the back end of a big week or a big two weeks or three weeks or 10 days or whatever that was, as well as when they comment the next day back to training, how that rest day felt really good, that means we timed it right. It should be right on the edge of where we're like, I'd love to keep this training going. I'm feeling really good. Whenever you're saying that to yourself, I've found over 20 years of doing this, whether it's for myself or for 
the hundreds and hundreds of athletes over the years, whether either also sports specific, whether in swimming only, triathlon, running only, um, cycling only, a variety of different um, other individual sports. I've found that whenever the athlete is able to say or comments or notices, man, I felt really good today. I feel really fit today, or I feel this is really being absorbed well. I have two th internal thoughts. One, time for a rest day, perfect timing. Let's give them or her an easy day or a rest day. Depends on the athlete and what they're training for and their level. Or there's that other little voice in my head that says, be careful, you're getting sick. Um, very similar reactions, very similar observations by the athletes. Some of them feel their best the day before they get sick. Um, and that's why I've also become so adamant on including rest right in that window because it won't get, your fitness won't disappear, won't get worse. Your adaptation won't be limited. Your progression won't be limited and your future outcomes are not going to be affected by a rest day after a really good training day. And many will argue that that will actually help you become better, stronger, faster, smarter, and so forth towards your endurance event if you throw in that extra rest because the adaptation will sink in even deeper and that we all as endurance athletes, even as an endurance coach, tend to overtrain. So that's something to think about that if you are resting and you feel that your rest day is good, not only well-deserved mentally, but you feel good physically, combining those two and you have an exhale moment and you have that appreciation and understanding and signaling from your body that it is literally exhaling that day and giving it a chance to recover and absorb and adapt, that is a good thing. And that could be two, three, four days like I just had. Okay, let's dive into an email question here. And I have a variety of thoughts around a bunch of the email questions. So I think it'll be quite helpful. Hi, Chris, cannot thank you enough for the podcast. Commute to work is an hour and 15 minutes, two and a half hours in the car each day. And I've been listening to the first episode since January. Great. <laughs> That's a lot of um, endurance talk to listen to. Um, I'm a new father with twin boys that are 10 months old. Awesome. I signed up for Ironman Lake Placid in December, and we just found out my wife is pregnant again. Whoa. With a full-time job, new twins, and one on the way, your podcast is perfect for me. <laughs> I'm not sure <clears throat> how my podcast is perfect for all the, the true Ironman work that you have ahead of you, and that's not has nothing to do with swim, bike, and run. Three kids in under, what would that be, 18 months. Wow. Um no, under two years. So um, anyway, so thank you. A couple of quick hit questions. If you had a minute on one of your podcasts, which may be of interest to others. One, swimmer's shoulder. I've developed a rotator cuff issue and I have not been swimming for three weeks, hoping it to heal. It is improving, but still sore. I have increased my run and bike volume to compensate a bit. Any tips on how to rehab this injury and get back into the water? <clears throat> Do straight kick sets, any work with stretch cords, one-arm drills. All right, well, 
Let's first underline the theory there and the approach there that I'm a big believer in that spending too much time on swimming, despite me just talking about how I see triathletes swimming in the pool, um, is not something to stress about. Um, biking and running is the fundamental time of an Ironman. <laughs> and I'm trying to see, is it your first Ironman? I'm not sure. It doesn't say. But so please don't stress about it. But that being said, swimmer's shoulder um, usually comes about for non-swimmers with incorrect form, technique. Um, I always like to say, that the reason non-swimmers get swimmer shoulder is because they're dropping their elbow and that they're pulling on the water versus rolling over it and creating the proper leverage, which uses your back muscles, your lat muscles, your um, and more the backside of your shoulder. Um, most swimmer shoulder issues happen on the front side of the shoulder. And again, because you're dropping your elbow. So the important thing there, and if I were to describe the location of the usual pain, it should be if you have your, if you're looking at your shoulder, <clears throat> if you take the center of your shoulder where your um, bone, your collarbone ends, and you sort of go straight down on the front side from that, sort of towards your armpit, usually most pain originates in there um, between your collarbone and as you run your finger down your shoulder towards your armpit when your arm's hanging on your side. Um, it's sort of in the middle there. Sometimes if you take it from your collarbone and go straight out the outside of your arm, um, of your, exactly, of your arm and shoulder, sort of toward, heading down towards the elbow, um, it's also in the middle there. Now, very rarely do swimmer shoulder happen in the backside of the shoulder. Um, because that means you would be using the muscles correctly, and that's where the development of the swim stroke is more powerful and therefore has more support mu stru muscular structure. But <clears throat> so the important thing there is on your freestyle stroke, remember to keep that elbow high as you pull through your freestyle stroke. Many seem to think that keeping their elbow high means that when they enter the water in front of them at 11 o'clock or one o'clock, that they then keep the elbow just below the water surface as they pull through their stroke. That is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is keeping your elbow higher than your forearm as you pull through your stroke, as you do the front quadrant of your swimming, so from where you enter to where the arm is and hand is directly below you. That's where you want to have the shoulder, be the elbow, be above the forearm. So as you're extending out, <clears throat> your arm is out in front of you, let's say at 11 o'clock or 1 o'clock, you gradually bring the forearm down, but you keep the elbow up. And now with that forearm slightly below the elbow, that is the motion you want to use to pull straight down and then eventually back. What you'll notice when you do that on your freestyle swim stroke, stretch out, right? Not fully hyperextended, but just arm straight out in front of you at the 11 o'clock or one o'clock position. Again, drop your hand with your forearm in one line 
lower gradually while the elbow stays higher and eventually you'll notice your shoulder comes up too. You've just engaged your lat and now pull through in a sort of scooping straight down and a little back motion. Scooping straight down and a little back while your forearm is above, um, sorry, is below your elbow. Your elbow is above your forearm on a um, horizontal plane. If you're doing that, the swimmer shoulder issue will rarely creep up again. Because again, you're not using the front of your shoulder, you're using the back and the lats of the shoulder and the lat and the back muscles. The other important thing is um, to keep in mind, when I hear that triathletes have swimmer shoulder, I find it interesting because 99% of triathletes don't swim enough in order for um, them to have swimmer shoulder issues. Um, the true swimmer shoulder issues come up with volume and that the inflammation in the shoulder is constantly being stressed due to repetitive motion. It's a repetitive and overuse injury usually. But to answer the question, so that's more how swimmer shoulder comes up. I developed the rotator cuff issue exactly. It's on the front side usually. Um, it also can happen when you do, let's say, push-ups incorrectly or do certain types of strength work incorrectly, um, helping it to heal. It is improving but still sore. I've increased my run and bike on. I would stay out of the pool. I wouldn't overthink it. I would use this time to really continue to develop my running and biking. You still have plenty of time until July with Ironman. And um, any tips on how to rehab this injury? I would not overthink it too much. One, when I once had a, um, and again, keep in mind, everything on this podcast, I would say 99% of it, because I've been doing this sport for 25 years and then swimming for 45 years and doing some sort of running and biking along with that also for probably 35 years. But being a triathlete for 25 years, an ultra runner, I'm talking about my experiences and I'm still doing it. Just this morning, I was dealing with an athlete who I'm trying to help in the pool swimming and I'm doing drills on my own in order to see how I can better describe what I would like her to do. How in the glide and how I want her hand catching up to the other hand and how I can do that motion that I just described with regards to the forearm dropping before the elbow and how to engage that. Because for most athletes, <clears throat> it's about relating what I'm already doing to them and having them feel it a few times. Once the athlete has felt it, then it's easier for them to repeat it and find the motion that's efficient for them and that works for them and that's repeatable for them. And that's part of what I consider not unique, but truly an advantage in my coaching is that I'm still doing it. I'm still out running 24, 30 miles at a time for an ultra run um, for training. I'm still out there on six hour bike rides. I'm still swimming 8,000 yards in a workout. I'm still doing 20 hours of training a week or more. Um, not every week, occasionally that much or more um, as volume as my bigger weeks, right? Not every week, of course. But that being said, so from that, I'm relating all this. I'm trying to relate it 
in the now and from what I know. And so that's why with regards to rehabbing this injury or what I was just bringing up with my own past experience, I find stretch cords work best um, in the lighter <clears throat> resistance aspect um, for really not looking for it as a workout for in, in with regards to rehab. If you have good motions, you can do stretch cords. That's great. But if you can't create the proper pull mechanics, that which is what caused the shoulder injury in the first place, I would surely not want you to do stretch cords and, and just continue to make the situation worse. We want to first get the right mechanics, the right technique, and then, of course, from there, you can work on strengthening that area for sure with stretch cords. And what I kept, keep getting distracted with is, again, with the right mechanics and understanding the proper pull-through, stretch cords work really way, great for a um, collarbone break injury and when you're coming back from that to gradually build in strength um, of range of motion in that strength aspect and also in some cases where you've had some rotator cuff injuries but even there it's got to be technique based so um sit out for now and then work on this time or look at YouTube videos or start simulating even when you get in the pool right now, maybe take an afternoon and work real slowly, not for purposes of a swim workout, but for purposes of trying to find that reach, 11 o'clock and one o'clock, create a paddle between with your hands and your forearm so that they're not tight and rigid, but that it's one plane your hand and your forearm are creating a very slight bend paddle. And then that drops in your pull before your elbow, right? And that creates your leverage and your downforce as well as your back force. You need downforce in your swimming, which is something many forget about. It raises your body up by pushing down on the water early in your stroke. Very important. I just got back from swim practice and it is remarkable how every swim practice, well, maybe not every swim practice, but how frequently, and I would say once a week, since I swim about three times a week, but once a week I observe how masters athletes, in many cases triathletes, come to a swim practice and are just 100% focused on rushing through, on getting as many yards in as they can. And that looks like not taking the appropriate rest for the intervals, not separating sets, which means um, either rounds. So let's say you do 100 freestyle, a 50 kick, and a, a three times 50 fast, right? So that um, each round is... Um, in this case, 300 yards, 100, a 50, and three times 50, and then taking some rest between rounds so that you set up the next round by prescription, either faster or stronger or different focus that the 50s are fast or the kick is fast or the 100 is fast, whatever that may be. So they just swim straight through. They get, yeah, they might take a little bit of rest after the 350s, but then right back into the 100, right back into the 50 kick, right back into the 350s, and just make it one simple, long-term, uh, one-hour-long, same-intensity swim practice, or swim, not even practice, swim 
output. And the funny thing about swimming is it's just like anything else what we're training for. What is the prescription? What is the desired outcome? Where is the gray zone? If you're just swimming and not changing speeds and not taking the proper rest in order to make the faster sections fast, the easier sections easy versus swimming a little too fast on the easy sections and too slow or a little bit too easy on the fast sections, you're just stuck at one speed swimming. And it's funny because I constantly get questions from triathletes and athletes and swimmers on asking me, how come I'm not improving on my swimming? Or I've been swimming for years and I'm just not getting any better. Swim practice is a very deliberate, focused output. There are intervals, there's rest, there's times you just recover at the wall for a minute or two. Some of the best swimmers in the world, if you watch their swim practices, yes, when they're on, they're on. But when they're done with the round or the set, they stop. They're jovial with their teammates. They just sit around. They hang on the wall. They talk. They drink. They use the bathroom. And then they look at the clock and they're like, all right, I'll go on the next top. You know, sometimes that's even 45 seconds away and they've taken two, three minutes between sets. There is no rush. It's in order to get the stimulus, to get the output. Just today again, there was a triathlete there just rushing through the rounds and not going fast on the fast sections, but also not going easy on the easy sections, just swimming. And even funnier was it that she had fins on. So Understand what your workout is. Understand what your desired outcome is. Understand the set. I got a question today from an athlete. Like, do you want the interval to be um, what I push off on? Or do you want the rest interval that you give me? We've talked about this on the podcast here. It is very important in your swimming to find what your intervals are, what your push off intervals are. And as I said, with regards to 50s and 100s and 200s and swimming, you want to know what your push-off intervals are because you want to be able to manipulate your rest. When I swim 100s freestyle, there's some intervals where I only get four or five or three or four seconds rest. There's other intervals where I get 20 seconds rest. There's other intervals where I get even more rest. But each one of those have a certain prescription, have a certain outcome. If I'm doing little rest, obviously my pace will have to slow a bit in order for me to be able to sustain that same interval where I'm getting three to four to five seconds rest. I'm only at the wall briefly. If I swim too fast, I might make one with extra rest, but as of two or three, I'm slowing down oftentimes past the interval so I get no rest. Then I'm swimming straight through or I have to change the interval. Now, if I'm getting 20 seconds rest or 30 seconds rest, of course I can increase the speed because I have more time to recover on the walls, gather my breath, refocus, and ensure that I'm going to swim the next 100 with good focus, intensity, reach, catching the water, and so forth. So just like in a cycling workout, just like in a running workout, know the prescription, know the outcome, know why we're doing the set. Ask your coach, ask the master's coach on deck and ask them, 
what's this for? And not in a rude way. Hey, what are we doing this for? No, but more like I'm trying to become a better swimmer and understand why we do this type of set. Because I know I'm supposed to change speeds and have different outputs, but how can, how will this help me? Help me understand it. No master's coach should. I know there's definitely jerks as master's coaches I've had on myself, and I'm a swimmer, <laughs> and they're still <laughs> complete rude introverts, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, just like in running and just like in cycling, you want to have a prescription, a reason, an output for the workout. Don't get me wrong. There are definitely some swim practices and ones that I assign to my athletes where I do just want them to swim 20 minutes straight, one pace, one speed, or even 45 minutes straight. There's a workout that I give athletes. It's a 1,000, it's an 800, it's a 600, it's a 400, it's a 200. That's a 3,000-yard set. Now, the 1,000 is at one speed. The 800 is a tick, a tiny wee bit faster. The 600 is a tiny wee bit even faster. The 400 is a little bit faster. The 200 is faster. And then we finish it up usually with a fast 100 or something like that, or maybe some 50s just to get the leg turnover and the arm turnover going. And then between the 1,000, the 800, the 600, the 400, the 200, we um, have a minute or two rest, you know? And I see it all the time. Triathletes even struggling there. They just swam a 1,000 straight. And then they don't want to take more than 45 seconds rest. It's like, how am I going to ensure that the 800 now is a tick faster if I didn't take some rest? If I didn't allow my body to recover in order to successfully implement, execute the next set. When I, uh, I have a lot of times where I coach a swim practice and athletes ask me, or the swimmers ask me, what's the interval? And I say to them quite often, pick an interval and so that you can successfully execute this set. So if it's, you know, eight 100s freestyle, and I want you to go at a, 90% effort, so not quite all out, but pretty hard effort, 90%, just 10% off the top end, well, you're going to need a lot of rest. So give yourself 30 or 40 seconds rest to successfully complete it, execute it. If you have eight 100s and it's an aerobic set where I just want you to go at 60% of your best effort and you're sort of focusing on a steady output, your go-all-day pace, well, then maybe you'll pick the interval that's five seconds or seven seconds rest. So understand that. And that is, I know it sounds frustrating to for so many, but that is only the only space where you will improve in your swimming. It becomes complicated around that, but that is the space. So there's also a second part to that question with uh, um, regards to the swimmer shoulder and that is about urinating during a race, um, something that we should be talking about, a peeing on the bike or peeing during the run. And the question is, how often should you urinate during a race? And more importantly, is this an indicator of hydration status? Example, if you have not had to urinate by the time you get to the run, does that mean you are likely dry? I wouldn't call it dry, but dehydrated. Um, likewise, if you've gone a couple of times by then, perhaps you are heavy on the fluid. Lastly, how do you urinate during a race? Just pee on the bike or get off and find a rest stop. Funny question, I know, but a few of us are curious. Well, 
So there's a variety of questions in there and a variety of ways to approach this. And so we'll go through it one by one. So yes, um, peeing during a 10, 11, 12, 14, 16 hour event, especially in an Ironman, becomes a dilemma, becomes something we think about because it is um, frustrating. And the reason I say it's frustrating because there is some truth to the you know, the it breaking the seal um, common description of once you pee once, you constantly have to pee again. Um, how does that tie into your hydration levels? Well, I would surely say it's a question of um, the clarity of your pee. Your pee color definitely gives you insight into how hydrated you are. If it's obviously dark and brown and dark yellow, you know, that might be an issue. You might need to drink some more. Um, and if it's clear, you're probably very well hydrated. And in most cases, most of us drink plenty during an event, despite what I was talking about earlier in the podcast. But the interesting thing is, because we know to drink a lot during a hot day and drink the days prior, we're very fixated on drinking. And in many cases, I think some of us drink too much. Um, and that can cause a whole host and range of issues as well, because over drinking becomes a big concern. And again, I don't want to talk in broad strokes here. So if you are wondering about that, talk to your coach as well as or send me an email because the 24 ounces to 30 ounces on a normal day guidance is a good place to start but you should be paying attention to what your needs are and how often you pee and so forth for me to it goes against everything i talk about here on the podcast and everything i believe in in my entire coaching philosophy and that is it's individual we need to figure out for you what you need on hydration but that's not really part of the questions here. So um, is this an indicator? Now, should you go through an Ironman, through the swim and the bike without having peed? That is not a good sign. I would agree. I don't want to say that as an absolute. It's always a bad sign. But you should probably have peed once or twice on the bike. Um, and I say on the bike. Um now, the challenge is when we're super hydrated, when we drink a lot of water the day before just to keep us topped off, and then we drink another bottle in the morning, usually we start already having to pee before the swim or during the swim, and you can easily pee in your wetsuit and swim, and it'll be fine. Um, I know this is the part where ultra runners are like, what What do you guys do? So we pee in our wetsuit, yes, either, either during the swim, many times online while we're waiting to start in our wetsuits. Um, so it does happen. Sorry, ultra runners. It does happen a lot. Um, and yes, on the bike, you do want to figure out how to pee. Now, many of you might be saying, Chris, that's disgusting. Then it runs down your legs and all that. Remember, if you're properly hydrated, it is basically water that you're peeing out. And if you're properly hydrated and you have water on your bike and stuff, you just sort of spray yourself off with the water bottle if it's bothering you. Keep in mind to slow down, well, one, to slow down in the middle of the race, pee for a minute and then get going again, that's a three, four minute delay. If the, if, if time and just finishing is the focus and time is not, then yes, by all means, stay comfortable, be smart, and um, 
pee on the side of the road in the course or there's I wouldn't really wait for an aid station because that becomes difficult too you know some of them in Ironmans are 20 15 20 miles apart that could be another hour so but yes and then what often happens and not just me but many athletes have experienced this over the 20 years of me doing this of coaching athletes is once they let break that proverbial seal they have to pee a lot that's fine that doesn't mean I back off on my hydration, nor do I recommend that for you. But I do pay attention, like, all right, this is my fourth pee on the bike. I'm clearly hydrated. I'm okay. I start then, or third pee even, start then thinking, all right, slow down a little bit. Maybe back off the hydration and the needs. So what I do then is I, I do smaller sips. I slosh out my mouth a little bit with water. Um, so that I get the sugary flavor out of it, um, and then spit it out. So I still stay in the habit of grabbing that water bottle and drinking a, a sip, and so I back off the gulps, and then I still stay in the habit of drinking and then sloshing out my mouth with that cold water. In hot races, when we're talking Kona, Malaysia, really hot days, days in, in Coeur d'Alene when it was 115, um, there's been some brutal days. And there I use the water bottles for, in a lot of cases also just to pour water on me. So I slow down a little bit more in the aid stations and grab a bunch of bottles and pour half of them on me and one that I keep and I put in my bottle cage. So, but that's a different strategy with regards to how to go through aid stations and maybe we'll discuss that on a future podcast. So then back to the questions here. Um, so yes, I do pee urinate um, by on the bike and you know, you just sort of slowly pull over um, and you're coasting. Hopefully it's a downhill because <laughs> you can't coast very long on an uphill and you sort of work your way through it from there. Um, you know, I've not, uh, I've seen plenty of women pee on the bike. And again, they sort of, you can see when somebody is peeing in front of you. And since you're not drafting, right? Nobody's drafting here. Nobody's drafting on this podcast. Anybody who listens to this knows that it is one of the things that absolutely infuriates me, the cheating and the drafting in the world of triathlon. But that being said, I have peed many a times on the bike when somebody's drafted me. <laughs> I just did it just recently at Ironman Canada um, this past summer. Because if you're going to be that close and I, you know, I'll just let loose. I don't really care. Um, but that being said, guy or girl, you can see when they're, when they're no longer pedaling and they're sort of pulling over to the white line and doing their thing. That's totally fine. Plus, your speed is going to be faster than them because they started coasting and they're sort of sitting up and therefore you go by and they pee and that's that. And again, it's water for most people. You're so hydrated and so many people have so much drink in them. It's fine. But again, I would precaution on drinking too much. And that also it brings up a point with regards to many of us, many of us, I talk about underfueling. There's many of us who have overfueled. They eat too much because they are reading all the industry magazines. They are hearing it from everywhere. Eat, 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 fuel, fuel, fuel. Again, the purpose of our training weekends is to have a really good idea of what we need, what makes us successful, what feels good, how we can sustain our fuel levels and our energy levels through the distance and time of the event. Not what some industry magazine tells you and all the noise. And even what I tell you, 
because I'm only giving you guidelines and I only want you to go out and test it for yourself and learn for yourself. Remember the whole premise of this best athletic, current athletic version of yourselves in the endurance arena is about you need to know what and learn what that best athletic version of yourself is. I, as a coach, it's my job to help bring it out, to help let it flower, bloom, but it's still you doing it. It's still you with the thoughts and the, the, the systematic approach towards that, with knowing your fueling, with knowing your hydration, with feeling good with a variety of options. The other thing with hydration and nutrition is in general, what happens if you're at a race where they don't have your choices or you're in a foreign country? The fact that you've tested different things, the fact that you've tested that you get to an aid station in Kona and it's been out there since the night before and the water's warm. Now you're drinking warm water. There's many events around the world, Ironmans, half Ironmans, where the weather and the environment and the climate just sets up that it's warm water. Now, have you trained that? Have you tested that? Is that possible? Absolutely. You can totally see how your body responds to everything. This event only has gels at aid stations, not chews or bananas or pretzels. Have you tested that? Do you know what they will offer? Are you able to go independent of the course, which we've talked about on the podcast? So anyway, things to keep in mind. Um, yeah, so if you're likely dry, if you haven't peed by T2, likewise, if you've gone a couple of times, perhaps you have heavy on the fluid, agreed. We talked about that lastly. How do you urinate during the race? I think I explained that. Um, just pee on the bike or get off and find a rest stop. Funny question, I know. Um, the other aspect for you ultra runners and for you triathletes, but ultra runners too, is if you're, you, you do want to race in enough scenarios, how do I put this? Um, to learn possibly to pee while running, while in stride. I'm, I've been able to do that for many years, that despite running, let's say 650s or seven minute miles in an Ironman, that I don't have to break stride and can just start peeing while running. Um, it is a, um, it has come as a, uh, a nice advantage in many um, instances that while running, you know, you're always at aid stations, especially in Kona is, is basically what I'm talking about. You're pouring water over your head and you're so soaking wet and sloshy anyway with your shoes and stuff. Peeing while running is, 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 is not as disgusting as it sounds. And to not have to stop two, three, four times um, is, it a, is a great, you know, time savings, four, five, six minutes. So um, if performance and a result and a qualification or a um, podium spot is something you're looking for, also in ultra running, I would think about how to learn that. Um, again, all it takes is really relaxing, really being overhydrated because you really have to pee that bad and waiting long enough that even by relaxing, you can pee um, in stride. Um, even if you have to shorten your stride or, or sort of go to a shuffle, but, but you're still moving, um, that's definitely helpful. And, uh, you know, in ultra running, it, it definitely comes up and there's river crossings and there's all kinds of stuff. So you're fine. Um, trust me, the front of the field is not stopping to pee. So uh, don't think you're the only one. So I think I answered that one. One of the 
consistent themes that I keep talking about on this podcast, and it's not in the sense of criticism, it's just a sense of confusion and a sense of that it's not applicable to me. And this is the biggest challenge in endurance sports, quite honestly, because most athletes understand that in order to do an endurance event, they need to train and train a fair amount of hours, whatever the discipline it is they're doing. Many athletes, of course, sign up for events that they then realize they can't train the hours for, and that's a different discussion. But most athletes understand that if I swim, bike, run, or a combination of those, and do that for many hours, it will get me closer to being prepared for, let's say, an ultra-endurance run, or an Ironman, or longer, or an adventure, or if they're getting ready to hike, you know, a multi-day hike that they need to spend hours out there hiking, um, and weighted packs, and rucking, and some strength work, they understand the physical nature of the work. They can understand and wrap their mind around, well, in order to get ready for something, I need to train. And in order to train, I need to do the physical activity and so forth. We don't need to talk much about that. The problem is that so many athletes overlook one of the most important aspects of their training. And if you are going to train, not just exercise, you must fuel properly. And I know it has come up frequently on this podcast. This is number 103, I'm thinking, or 102. And we are still discussing fueling and hydration. And that is because I get emails and updates and check-ins and phone conversations with so many athletes, whether they're my own or those who are just sending me questions about the fueling and hydration. And I think it's also because we all know what I keep preaching, literally preaching in this case, that if we don't fuel and hydrate properly, all that training we are doing is for nothing. And I know that's extreme, not for nothing. But the training you have done, the time you have sacrificed, the time you've put in and the hours away from family or doing going the extra mile or doing the work and staying disciplined and going to bed early and doing the proper training can only be done if fueled properly. Otherwise, all that time that you put in is not reaching your potential. When the event comes, when the adventure comes, when the multi-day expedition comes and you don't know how to fuel pre, during, to the best of your athletic ability, well, then you're compromising your output, your performance, everything you've worked towards. And I'm not just talking a little bit. I'm talking you are throwing all the training out the window. Because if you are not fueling in your training, you're not having the proper adaptations, you're not recovering properly, you're not coming into the training session properly topped off in order to have a successful training session in order to achieve the adaptation we're looking for. And it is a devious, devious cycle. And so many athletes think it doesn't apply to them. And don't get me wrong, I've been there, I understand race weight, I've played with that myself, of course. But I'm talking about general daily fueling for the 
exercise. In this case, if you're not fueling right, you're only exercising and don't think you're training. Daily fueling for whatever it is in your training plan that you're looking to do. You must be fueled. And if you're looking to lose weight and do this in order to lose weight, well, then you're exercising, then you're not training. I'm sorry, there is no if, ands, or buts about it. There are real simple, real simple. And I keep saying this to many athletes, whether at races or at events or at talks, there is no bonus. There is no time reduction. There is no improvement in your placing. There is no extra special award for the athlete that fueled less than others and still had a performance. No. Why? Why would you not set yourself up for the best current athletic version of yourself? The best current athletic output and performance that you've put the training in for for many weeks and months and sometimes even years in order to compromise it for not fueling properly, for not having paid attention during your long weekends on how you want to have breakfast, how you want to generate. Well, the post is a different story and I'll go into that in a moment. But this lack of fueling prior, women, you need 600 to 800 calories prior to a long day. There is no in if, ands, or buts about it. You can say you don't know this or you don't need this or you don't drop off an energy in that or that would make me feel full and doesn't matter. You still need to have a topped off system in order to perform for 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 30, 40 hours. And those of you running a marathon, those of you women who are running a marathon in three hours, the output of doing that requires that much many calories anyway. Look at any Boston Marathon runner. Look at any elite marathon runner. Those women are eating 800 to 1,000 calories before. No, not in the 30 minutes prior, not in the 60 minutes prior, but in 120 minutes, maybe up to 90 minutes prior. They are topped off. And they've taught themselves to eat that whether it's Ironman women, or whether it's marathon women, whether it's ultra running women, they've taught themselves over many, many weekends and months how to per absorb those calories in order to be topped off with good quality, sustainable sustenance of food and fuel that will be long lasting and burning in their gut and perform, allow them their body to perform and deliver the performance they've trained for. They've trained for you have all, if you're listening to this, you're all making some sort of sacrifice, thought time, um, training time, logistics time, time away from so many things that I know are important to you, but you've put your mind to something and you're looking for a desired outcome. That's awesome. But why compromise that with lack of fuel and hydration? And hydration is also a tricky game, but the fueling aspect is what most start with with regards to confusion. Guys, you need 800 to 1,000. I eat, just yesterday I went for a four and a half hour bike ride um, in Marin. I had about 1,250 calories, 1,300 calories before that ride. That's just normal. And I'm not a big eater in that respect. I do eat a lot, I understand that. But um, that's what I know I burn and need in order to go 800 to 1,000 calories. Before an Ironman, I'm putting in 1,400 to 1,600 calories in the morning. 
and I get up earlier in order to take my time in order to get in those calories. And I've taught myself how to eat those calories slowly and deliberately so that I have the fuel in an Ironman to get through an hour swim and 20, 30 minutes into the bike. So an hour and a half of vigorous exercise to just work from the topped off fueling state that I started at. Then I manage my calories for the rest of the day, like we've talked about in past podcasts with regards to the um, bathtub and not wanting it to be too empty. We want to keep it somewhat half full. And the further we get into our endurance event, we it's draining further and further. It's getting emptier and emptier. Now we want to keep it a third full. Then we want to keep it a quarter full. We don't ever want to get on empty. Because once you're on empty, putting refilling it even a quarter way takes a ton of calories. And that is difficult. As we go through a longer and ultra endurance run, for example, you might start off, you're topped off, you had a big breakfast, you're, you're well hydrated. Now for the first hour and a half, you can just run. And then you can settle into your feeding, yes, feeding strategy. You can settle into your ability to gradually take on fuel. Maybe that's just 150 calories an hour for a guy in the beginning. That's fine. And then gradually, as you go further, you know you're emptying the the bathtub ever so gently. So you have to up it to 175 or 200 calories an hour. And now you're five, six, seven hours and you notice you need 250 to 300 calories an hour. And it feels right because you are ravenous. You are hungry and you need options. You don't want the sugar junk. And another thing for such a good breakfast, for a reasoning for such a good breakfast, do you want to right away at the first aid station because you only had 500 calories for breakfast as a guy or three, 400 calories for breakfast as a woman and get to that aid station and then look around and you're having pretzels and potato chips and, and M&Ms, which is very common at um, ultra runs. Do you want your day to start with sugar and salt and junk like that or do you want to sustain yourself on energy and fuel that you put in your body that is healthier, more powerful fuel, and takes you further into the event before you have to jump into that junk? Or hopefully you're carrying your own stuff, but that's still a little bit more astronaut food, maybe not quite gels and chews, but and still bars and stuff like that, or even some homemade stuff. It takes, it's still not as powerful and as sustenance and as sustainable and long-lasting energy in your tummy as a good breakfast, as a good meal that you can prepare in your home or in your hotel room or have thought through prior. Just the other day, I had an athlete, she thought for a three and a half hour run that 400 calories for breakfast was enough. I mean, I understand. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've been an athlete for 45 years. It's I have it in my brain, second nature. But to think that off of 300 calories, 400 calories for breakfast, maybe let's say roll up 400 calories, that she can then get through a three and a half hour run where she's burning about 300 to, uh, 400 to 450 calories an hour while running. She can get through that on maybe then another gel or, or a waffle or something like that. The math there is completely off. And I'm not saying that with regards to criticism or uh, ranting here. Let's just go through the math. 
A woman who, let's say, weighs 125 pounds is whatever, right? Let's just take that example, normal height, normal weight, or whatever, uh, 130 pounds. It's not the point here about the exact weight, but it's more about that she has about a a woman has about a caloric need for a three and a half hour run of 1200 to 1400, not caloric need, caloric burn. So let's say it's 1200. Let's say the low end, right? Three and a half hours, 1200. So then her general daily needs, given uh, the, the endurance training she's doing is already more than the recommended daily allowance, right? Of where you'd say, um, uh, uh, 1800 calories. So let's she's at, let's just say she's at 2200 calories because of that on daily need because of the hours she's spending training on the weekends and all, and some every day. So now she's at 2200 plus the burn need of the of the um, three and a half hour run on the Saturday. So now that day alone, in order to just break even, she's got to eat 3400 calories that day. 3,400 just to get to par, to zero, to a level playing field. And in order to then have some enough in the tank for the next day, not being a deficit, not having overeat and stored energy, and overeat not in a negative sense, but eating a, a little bit more because you know you have another big day on Sunday. But let's just get back to 3,400 calories. If she had a $400, a $400, 400 calorie breakfast, now she needs to eat another 3,000 calories the remainder of the day. So during, let's say she had 250 calories, right? Because she had a gel and maybe some something else. Let's say even she had 300 calories during. So now, not only is she depleted late in her run and she thinks it might be fitness, but it's actually lack of fuel, which is the big thing that so many athletes confuse. They think it's their fitness why they slow down at mile 20 of a marathon. They think it's their fitness that halfway through the run at a half Ironman at a 70.3, they're running out of energy. They think it's fitness that late in the bike, they don't have the power anymore. It's fuel. We've all done, in most cases, rarely do I see athletes that have just not done enough and wonder why they're running out of fitness. Those that run out of fitness, truly because of fitness, they already know that they probably haven't done enough training. They can do the math there. But most that are confused, well, I ran out of fitness, and that yet they you can see on their training logs or just in, if they're athletes of mine, I know they've done enough training volume and they run out of energy, they run out of fuel. And so there they are, their empty tank and everything starts be becoming questioned. Their performance, their training, why they're doing this, all those mood um, inputs, right? And it just becomes a negative experience and it, all it is is fuel. Something we can control, something we can teach our body to absorb, something we can set a watch to, something we can write down on our bike, on our head tube, or on our arm, on our forearm when, our, when we're running, and get a good sense of what we need every hour. There's so much to manage. It's controllable. It's a controllable output. But back to that example, we're at, we had, let's say, 300 calories during that run, and that. 400 calories for breakfast. Now we're at 700 calories and we said the need is 3,400 for that day just to get back to an ability to re allow the body to regenerate versus being at a deficit and wanting to 
eat at itself, which it quite honestly does if you really go through the physiology of it. Um, so now the rest of the day, she has to eat 2,700 calories. <laughs> That's not easy to do to get the par. And given that it's a three and a half hour run, by the time showered and cleaned up and ready to eat in the prior time, it's probably one o'clock in the afternoon. So between one o'clock and 9 p.m., let's say when she goes to bed, in that eight hours, she has to eat 2,700 calories. That is hard to do. That's a lot of food if you're just sitting around and eating. And then the, the cravings come. And then the, I'm so hungry. And then the drop-off in quality of food comes because you're so hungry and you're making irrational, not the smartest decisions on the food quality. So this circle just keeps going and going. And then the, the food choices aren't as clean and as effective and the refueling isn't as effective. Your next workout is compromised or maybe not. But down the road, you come at a deficit because she didn't eat 2,700 that day. She maybe ate only 2,000, which also is a quite amount. Um, now, 20, uh, uh, she's at a four or $500 calorie deficit. Now that goes into Sunday and maybe that day isn't as big and as long, but you know, maybe only a hundred calorie deficit and you do this every day. And after a while, yeah, sure. It sounds great to those who are looking to lean out and, and, um, get lighter and lose weight. But one, if you're looking to lose weight with this, you're not looking for performance. It's either or. And I can't say that enough for guys, for girls, for any athlete, if you're looking to lose weight, you're not looking for performance. If you're looking for performance, you don't care about losing weight or how, what your weight is. Because we can always work on leaning out. And the leaning out is creating lean muscle mass, is changing our body composition. That comes via a different approach. It doesn't come via gradually reducing the calories like that. Right? And I know this is a delicate topic, but just stay with me here on the math. So you're a little bit short every day. By the end of the week, you're maybe 1,000 or 1,500 calories short, which it doesn't seem like a lot. But it is because you're never rebuilding, you're never regenerating, and the injury likelihood goes way up. Your ability to burn fat efficiently goes way down because despite being at zone two, because your body is so short on fuel, what is the fuel source, source, fuel source it always takes for the quick hit? Glycogen, carbs, right? And so you're creating more binge um, signals, right? You're craving carbs, you're craving sugars, you're craving the quick meal, the quick calorie input. If this is constant, you're in a cycle of not creating the engine that we're looking to create, create with an aerobic, fat-burning, zone two engine that using fat as fuel is basically doing 80% of the work for you as you are increasing your speed and power in this training. Let's not forget that. Zone two training is exactly that. It's supposed to maximize the amount of fat you're using as fuel whilst getting stronger, faster, fitter, increasing pace, increasing watts. If I can ride my bike 
at 240 watts while primarily being in zone 2 burning fat versus 180 watts, that's huge. So not only does it fatigue me less, but I'm using fat as an unlimited fuel source. You have enough fat in your body for any Ironman. Many Ironmans in a row. Right? You just have to get that fat that at some point you're also continuing to allow the fat to be used as fuel. When you get fatigued, too fatigued at some point, even at a low heart rate, it will switch over because it's so fatigued that it needs all the fuel it can get. That's a different physiological process. But as you fuel during your training, not training, during your event, during your race, during your continuing to use primarily fat as a fuel source and you're adding yes you're adding carbs and you're adding fat and some proteins during the event with bars and shoot food shoot excuse me food like that but that's covering the tank from getting too empty and making sure that you are continuing to keep the chain of primarily fuel from fat going with some insurge and some help with the carb system because it never stops it's never like you're 100% fat. That's also a complete uh, misunderstanding in the, the um, primarily burning fat world of athletics. You're always burning some carbs and you need carbs to help efficiently burn fat. It's part of that entire circle and cycle. But anyway, the point here is that we need to fuel during and we need to keep the recovery and the body going. We are not looking to restrict and, and here's the other point around that. Restrict makes it sound like it, it's intentional. I am not saying many of the athletes that are struggling with this type of fueling and needing to fuel in order to have the performance that they're capable of. So many athletes, I know they're capable of such a better performance because I see it in their training. But because of the fueling, they're not showing that they're not able to get through the event in order to continue on with the fitness they've built and the performance they're capable of. That being said, um, they're not, athletes aren't doing this on purpose. They're not trying to sabotage themselves on purpose. They're not trying to restrict themselves on purpose. They just think that they don't need it or they don't feel it right? But until one, you felt the other side on how good it feels that you're properly fueled and properly hydrated and you get through the event and you, you're like, wow, I never hit that proverbial wall. And then they think, oh, well, it's because I trained like this. No, it's not just the training. The training does play a significant role, but not as big of a role as people think. The fueling plays a bigger role. And that's part of this whole coaching process that I go for so that I talk about here on this podcast so often. You can open any book and get a great training plan. But it's learning to teach yourself all the aspects to get through that that six to eight to 10 to 12, whatever, how long many hours or get your body across real estate for that many hours over to that distance that's the, the skill of learning. I need fuel. I need hydration. I need pacing. I need mindset. I need fitness, of course. And I need the ability to, to be able to train that. And in order to train it day after day, it will create the volume of a 100-mile run in a minimum amount of days, right, that we've talked about in the past with regards to training approach. We need to be able to 
do that many days in a row and that comes via fueling and being successful with fueling and rebuilding and adapting and recovering and again stress load recover stress load recover that all that comes into play here and it all ties into fueling and hydration so let us not forget that it is so important when it comes to our entire endurance training approach the importance of remaining fueled and fueled is something that is teachable. You have to give your body the opportunity to learn how to take on a lot of calories. I've gone through so many phases in my training over the years of needs where I went from 200 calories an hour on the bike to up to 300 calories an hour on the bike. I even went up to like 380, close to 400 calories an hour on the bike. And then I gradually um, found a sweet spot at like 285 calories about an hour. It that's what it averaged out to. I didn't get down to that a single calorie every hour. But um, managing myself through that. Chrissy Wellington was close to 60 grams of carbs per hour on the bike when she was in her heyday of winning Ironmans left and right and Kona's. Miranda Carfrey eats also around 300 plus calories an hour on the bike, just on the bike, because especially in a triathlon, what do we always say? It's the, uh, you want to get through the bike as efficiently as you can. That means also topped off with fuel, using the least amount of energy as possible while still going fast, right? So again, staying controlled, but then again, also staying fueled in order to get to the run to run the best possible run performance. And all that requires fuel and hydration. And so there's during, we've talked about that, but don't forget the pre. Don't forget the pre-fueling. That is so important to think that you can go out for three, four, five, six, seven, ten hours on 400 calories. That's not realistic. Guys, if you think you can go out on a long training day, two, three, four, five hours, well, not two, but three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours on 500 calories, no. Again, control the things you can control. A good breakfast or a good meal prior is something you can control. You can get further into your event by fueling the controllable things like a meal and then gradually introduce the foods that already you're going to get tired of. Let's not forget, we all know that we get sick and tired of that food that's out there, whether in ultra running at the aid stations and you're sort of scanning it after six, eight hours, like, Ugh, what do I want? Um, or in triathlons where you're like looking at the, the, the sugar junk and you go, Ugh, what do I want? And then, yes, we're already going to be forcing it down. So front load, get those calories in with a meal prior and as far into your day on real food and on things you can control. Because the astronaut food, the sugar junk is coming. There's no way out around it. We can't have a big handful of nuts and different good fuel sources when it comes to fat and so forth and well-balanced and healthy and clean burning fuel and sustainable fuel out there while running, while cycling. That's impossible. But on the front end, we can get as far into the event off of that long burning fuel as possible. So 
and sorry, and the point there is we have to teach that. You're not all of a sudden this weekend going to go out there and be able to eat 600 calories for breakfast as a woman. No, that's hard to do. So start with 400 and eat an extra half of a, of a bagel. Let's say you don't eat gluten. Eat a little bit more of your, your um, um, gluten-free oats or um, an extra um, tablespoon of almond butter or something else that is just a little bit more, just another bite or two, and gradually up the amount that you're eating every week. So not that you're full and bloated, and even if you feel a little bit topped off and not necessarily uncomfortable, but definitely I ate a little bit more than I usually do, you have 90 to 120 minutes before you go out the door and train or before you start your activity. Maybe you're driving somewhere or it takes you a little bit to get there, um, whatever. There's many ways we start our workouts. So gradually teach yourself that and you will be plenty rewarded in the outcome and the output and in the mood and in the energy you have for your training and for your event. You're training when you're fueling. You're exercising when you're restricting yourself. And I'm not saying you're restricting on purpose. I'm just saying when you are shortchanging yourself on the fuel. So... Please use that time. This is one of the most effective ways to start training for your endurance event. For shorter events, this isn't a big, big equation. If you're running a half marathon, if you're running anything under, doing anything under two hours, you can get by on basically very little and a little something during electrolyte drink. But if you're going anything over three hours, you need fuel and lots of it. That's how our body works. That's how we've evolutionarily worked. And the crazy thing is around that, our evolution is revolves around eating big amounts of food prior to an event. Many days of not getting food where we have the ability to do that and still put forth the proper effort. And I don't want to go into all that because, you know, those are theories and approaches that um, many will want to argue with. I get that. But I do know we need to fuel for endurance events for anything longer than three hours. And we need to have a very specific approach about it and learn and teach our body about it. If you have more questions on this, please send me emails. Please hit me up on the social media uh, channel, which I only use Twitter. Um, please uh, send me a, a text or, or via the website. I'd be glad to talk about it here because it is something that does create so much confusion and ambiguity and, and it's just a bummer because so many of you do so much training and to then not see the performance you want to have is, 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 is why I do this podcast. I want you to have the performance you're capable of. So enough on that. And speaking of that fat burning aerobic system, remember the aerobic human body is such a key driver in so many things that we do. And this is not just for endurance events, but just with regards to zone two training. It's associated with such improved health, longevity, your ability to recover, and of course, endurance. And when a good aerobic engine isn't well-developed, Poor aerobic function leads to serious deficiencies. 
Aerobic deficiencies are quite common for those, obviously, who exercise too hard, right? We see this a lot in going too hard on easy days and too easy on hard days, and you're stuck in the gray zone. Many of us know that. But because of our daily lives, we're already overstressed. Uh, overstressed. There's a lot of stress in our system and in our bodies with regards to our daily lives. And it's it becomes even worse when we're inactive. But you're listening to this because you're already active at a fair amount. But when we have a f- poor fat burning system and reduced muscle support and function around that, some of the symptoms you see by training a tick too hard or not taking advantage of our aerobic um, energy system is exactly what we talk about a lot. Chronic fatigue, frequent injuries, hormonal imbalance, increased body fat. That's the, uh, our body responding in that way because it is constantly under stress, whether because the training's too hard, because we don't have enough recovery, right? Chronic fatigue. Um, And the constant stress creates chronic inflammation. And at the end of the day, it also creates poor endurance. So we want to build that aerobic engine as best we can through relatively easy exercise, zone two, at a heart rate specific that we've determined via testing. Right, As I always say to new athletes, the best zone two training feels too easy and it's almost too relaxing for, for lack of a better description because it doesn't feel like a workout. It feels like this can't be what Chris means or what they mean or what zone two training is. If this isn't training. This is relaxing. It's too easy. It doesn't feel like a workout. Then we're probably pretty close because it is so foreign to us. And aerobic deficiency, lack of having built an aerobic engine that is quite strong and functional, especially in the endurance world, is one of the mo- main risk factors when you for overtraining because you're constantly going a tick too hard. And you're going to see the, the lack of consistency and uh, lack of uh, being healthy with regards to training and injuries continue to creep up. Chronic fatigue, frequent injury, and um, a body that doesn't feel as good as it can based off the training, the time you're putting in, the training time you're putting in is quite common for those who um, think that increased volume at increased effort will yield better results. So keep that in mind that when you're working around aerobic engines and when we're doing this zone two training, it's not just for that endurance event you're doing. It's for your overall health in general. It allows you to change that not necessarily um, uh, lean muscle mass in, in in the cleanest of ways, the way many would understand it, but it does help change body composition. And it does take the edge off from the daily stress that we have and the inflammation in our body. And it does 
reduce the likelihood of injury because A, you're going at an easy enough pace. B, you can do it day after day and you build up the durability. C, you're not depleting your energy system and your hormonal system and your stress, your adrenals to a point that you, you're constantly under load. The best aerobic training feels easy, almost too easy. That's zone two. By the way, a couple, two months ago, I think it is now, I received an email from one of the listeners and he sent me his lactate test results. And it happened to be a bad test, one that I couldn't really use on the podcast, but he offered for me to discuss it and explain what it means and why and how and what I look for and what the numbers mean and, and a big picture. And I'd really like to do that for all of you to go through a lactate test profile, the data, the chart, the meaning of it all, why and so forth. So if you have one um, and you want to discuss it or want me to discuss it on the podcast, feel free to send it to me. Um, Peter, I hope you did get a chance to retest um, because as I wrote you, um, that test was not really uh, worth the money that they hopefully didn't charge you for. So, But I just wanted to add that little piece. And finally, uh, the last question for the day, and to close out this podcast, I received an email about Boston qualifying. And because that's coming up in a few days, I thought we should jump into the BQ question, right? BQ being Boston qualifying. Hi, Chris. First off, I love your podcast. As most of your listeners have said, your practical training advice and emphasis on mental and spiritual aspect of endurance training is so motivating. I save your podcast for my weekly long run and it makes the miles fly by. Yeah, I didn't go into anything too deep today. I've noticed that. So um, in the last segments, I haven't recorded this all in one day. I was hoping to get your advice on the most effective training to improve my marathon time. My goal is to qualify for Boston. Um, I'm a Massachusetts native and have lived in Boston in the last six years. I think the Boston Marathon is so inspiring, and I love how it draws the city together every year. Yes, it is amazing. I've done it once. I used um, They used to. I don't know if they still do, but they uh, used to allow my the Kona Marathon to qualify you for Boston. And one year, I had a pretty good run in Boston. In, Kona. And so that time qualified me for the Boston Marathon. I was pretty stoked about that. Um, Then uh, I used to think marathon runners were superhuman, that I'd never be able to run 26.2. Then I trained and ran my first marathon last year, coming in five minutes under my goal pace. Awesome. I'd never worked that hard for anything and seeing all my effort pay off when I crossed the finish line was an amazing feeling. Yes, that is the feeling for most of us in any endurance event. And sort of why I love this coaching and I I truly um, enjoy every day in that respect. And that is sharing the feeling with others of what it feels like to reach a goal, to reach a desired outcome, something that you had put a vision in your head for and had made the sacrifices and gone on a journey in order to accomplish and, and do the work for it. And again, I think those that is part of that clarity of the best current athletic version of ourselves. And I think from that, it just keeps getting better and better and better. So I think uh, qualifying for Boston would be a great next challenge. I ran last year's marathon in 355, though I never hit the wall. 
Um, I had enough juice left to run the to run 45 seconds per mile faster for the last two miles. I need to run under 325 to qualify for Boston, which is a significant jump. Yes, that's true. Um, a couple of things: that 45 seconds per mile, right? You're you're mentally you switched over in that your brain can project the time distance ahead, and it is willing to push further and harder, and it isn't in fear. Um, as much, right? So that's that's that phenomenon. Now, if you can do that as of mile 16, that'd be pretty sweet. Um, but that we can train that, right? And so that's another big thing with regards to marathon training. Marathon training is different than endurance events because it is a threshold event for three to four hours. So you have to manage your output along with fueling, along with fatigue, along with the edge of fitness, along with the pounding and the durability of your body on the legs and the core and the midsection. It's hard. Running hard marathons is hard work. And um, yeah, in general. So that's all I was going to say. Um, Oh, the second part there is uh, 325. So finding 30 minutes for 26 miles, obviously, is a minute, a mile approximately. Now, you should have a pretty good jump bump from 355 on your next marathon because you have more experience and you have more familiarity on what you're going to feel and what you need to focus on in your training. You can relate your mind to the day of the marathon and what that felt like the 355 and then you can close your eyes and put yourself there in your training on all right this is why i need to overcome this this is why i need to do this type of training this is why this is on the training plan and i say that to a lot of athletes with regards to doing their first of any type of endurance event because once you can relate to why the training is so specific to that phase of an event, then you come back the second time through and you you internalize it and you understand it and you connect with it completely differently. And that's why in a lot of cases, the next jump in marathon training and endurance training and Ironman training and ultra running, ultra running is a little different due to the terrain and the different elevation profiles, but any type of measurable output you do have a significant bump. And of course, then the following time, not as significant, and then the the, the bumps get smaller. But I wouldn't discount yourself and your ability to get a fair amount closer on your next marathon. Um, I know generally speed work and hills are useful for improving running speed. Well, remember, hills are um, useful for running strength. Right, you um, when you're on an incline, your running stride changes. Right, if you flatten that out and think about where your foot lands on an incline, it's a little bit more under you and pushes up a little bit further behind you. It's more of a glute and a um, a different recruitment of the bigger muscles. So, and we do that for strength and, of course, for confidence and oxygen uptake and as a little bit of quality as well. Um, but I'm not sure how to best leverage those. Should I be increasing the volume, time or distance of speed work hills or keep the volume the same and increase my intensity? Um, should I make my longer runs longer or faster? Yeah. Um, or should I be focusing on something else entirely? I'm running another marathon this June and then Chicago in October. I'd love to be have enough improved improved enough to qualify at Chicago, but I'm sure that's feasible. Um, so 
Yes, marathon training is a different beast, like I said earlier, an animal. And there's so many ways to go about it. And they're all good ways. Um, some coaches apply a lot of focus, speed work, and um, attention to the small minutes that you can gain here and there. Um, Chicago is a totally different profile than getting ready for Boston, so keep that in mind too. Chicago has an, is a um, race actually where because of the crowds and the way the course is laid out, you have to do things a little bit differently. Um, and I can go over that with you on a separate email or if on a separate podcast because Chicago is a, is, has a different run strategy I would recommend. Um, but you're doing another one in June. So it, it, it's hard to say that. I wouldn't know what, where your limits were last time. Right. Um, what? Where did you run out of energy, or where did you hit that mental wall? If you didn't hit the physical wall, right, by saying that you ran forty-five seconds per mile faster. Um, in general, I always would defer to wanting to have the fitness. In this case, for you, you're looking to qualify at three twenty-five, and you've done three fifty-five. So my next focus would be a quality fitness level of three thirty to three forty right? That would be the goal. That would be the focused next step of your training. So first, I want to be very comfortable that I can run three hours and 40 minutes durably, meaning that when I'm done with three hours and 40 minutes, or let's say three hours, we don't have to necessarily run 340, three hours on pavement, I feel durable enough that it doesn't leave me achy, sore, flat, limited the next day or two. Um, that to me is again, like we said earlier, outstanding fitness. And then I would start working backwards from there on inserting goal pace as well as faster than goal pace. I think it's very important to remain focused on improving your goal pace, um, or running goal pace at any point in time through multiple workouts that you're able to find goal pace and click into it very quickly and easily without requiring a big um, dramatic mindset or shift or focus or prep for that workout. Goal pace for a marathon should come not easily, but you should be able to just wind it up a little bit and settle in. Otherwise, I feel, again, many ways to go about this, but this is how I typically start by going about it. Um, I feel then it might not be a realistic goal pace. So it looks to me like that we're talking about eight minute miles here, right? Because I think that puts us at 333 or 330, 330 something around there. So you should be able to run eight to 815 miles pretty reasonably easily, not easily like you're out for a jog and it just comes, oh, look, 815 miles, but more like, all right, let me wind it up and I can hold this right now for eight miles if I needed to that type of fitness. And then going backwards from there, I'd want to see it in multiple runs as well as in longer runs where the first hour maybe, um, I would do 40 minutes at gold pace after warming up. Then I would go 20 minutes easy or 15 minutes easy. And then I would run another 40 minutes either at gold pace or a few seconds faster. Um, that's when you start getting close to knowing, wow, I can hold gold pace and a little bit faster than gold pace. So that overall average is just under gold pace for an hour and 20 minutes with just some easy jogging in between and so forth. Um, many of my marathon people know 
that I transitioned from that, from their first marathon, a lot of goal pace and heart rate time, to more pace work on the second marathon, where we're, we're going to start risking um, the effort and the, uh, the output uh, onto the, the edge a little bit, because we want to see how far we can push it. And by the third marathon, they're, re- they're doing track work um, for leg turnover. They're doing a lot of this pace work so that they can click into pace work after hill repeats um, without thinking about it, that they can click into pace work after a track, um, after speed work and zone four and zone five work at the track. Um, and quickly after the track, um, go into two, three miles at goal pace, right? You create the load and then you find goal pace real quickly. Again, your familiarity and your ability to click into goal pace pretty quickly is what I've found. Again, my approach um, works very well for marathoning. Um, Now, there's also ways to test goal pace to make sure we're we're doing it properly um, so that we're able to do it over a variety of terrain like you ask. Um, Should I be increasing the volume? time or distance of speed worker hills. Yes, you can do that in your build up to a certain point. But then again, what's the profile of the course? And what was the profile of the last course? And how did you absorb that? Maybe you were already strong at that. Keep the volume the same, but increase my intensity. And too much intensity is um, dangerous, unless we're uh, surrounding it with good recovery and good focus. So intensity, um, again, a marathon, right, 26 miles, well, let's say 24 miles of focus work. There's a mile in there on the back end and the beginning where it just sort of clicks in. If you take the overall pace, it should not be that hard to click into that for six miles on a random day where you're not fatigued. Um, it should not be hard to click into a 10-mile run at goal pace. So the intensity level for something like that should not be that much higher. Um, the furthest I usually go in um, intensity for a marathon training program, other than track work, where those are you know 400s and 800s, that's you know a minute and a half, three minutes. That's nothing dramatic. You quickly recover for that, and I, from that, and I give people a lot of recovery. But that's more just leg turnover and speed and, and form for that, and just running economy. But um, I generally don't go faster than 10% faster than goal pace. So if you're looking to run eight-minute miles, that is 480 seconds. And so I would say 10% of that, 48, I would not go much faster than, in this case, 712 pace. That's plenty of intensity for an eight-minute mile goal pace marathon train. So you could do speed play around that, let's say 715, for a mile or two and then recover at 8.15 so that you're still on the slow side of goal pace in that recovery. Um, But again, you got to be delicate and gentle with how you progress this because this can quickly lead to injury. And I would want you to be smart about this. So it's a hard question to answer without knowing you, knowing your running miles, your volume and things like that. But all the things I'm mentioning factor in to why we do what we do in our marathon training. Um, Should I make my long runs longer or faster? I mean, I don't know how long your long runs have been. Um, Typically in my training, I don't 
have my athletes run much longer than two and a half hours for a marathon. And that's pretty easy stuff. So at two and a half hours at zone two, right, they're often only getting um, you know, 16 miles in, uh, maybe sometimes 18, but they're definitely not touching 20. Then many of them get nervous and, and worry about um, how am I going to do a marathon if I've not run over 16 miles or 18 miles? It's fine. <laughs> Your ability to do it on that day is often fine. But then, you know, again, it's a question of experience. How many marathons have they done with me? How have they stayed injury-free? How have they successfully uh, uh, absorbed the load? Um, um, shin splints and uh, PF issues and calf issues and Achilles issues all come up very quickly once you start increasing load too quickly, um, as well as demands on the body with too much pavement or too much not enough recovery time. And I'm currently dealing with one, two, three athletes that are dealing with a PF, shin splints, Achilles issues. Um, two of them started they already had issues with it before they started with me. And the other one, you know, we're working through it. But um, there's a variety of ways we can try to m maximize the training time whilst still recovering. So, or, or allowing that, that niggle, that inflammation, that, hello, I'm right here, um, sign of the, of the injury um, potential to sort of say, yep, you're, you're heard, we're, we're paying attention, we're, we're switching shoes, we're switching terrain, we're doing some work around it, um, and we're not ignoring you, but um, we also need to continue to run or do something physically so that we progress our training. So I'm not really sure I answered all your questions as, as um, specific as you might have wanted them, but I hope that helps with regards to some things to think about. Um, also, with regards to hill repeats, you know, I would start at 30, 40, 60 seconds and maybe increase those to two, three minutes, but nothing dramatic. Again, once you put all the workouts together for a week, let's say you do a long tempo run and then a goal pace run and a hill repeats run and a track workout, and you throw a bunch of easy jogging around that as well, there's still a lot of hours. That's a lot of running hours in a week. So it's, it's the ability to withstand that... Um, that load and being durable enough. So hope that helps. All right, I think we'll shut it down from there for this week. Keep it shorter. <laughs> We're at 139. I like how I always think that's short these days. But yeah, um, a lot of technical, ooh, that's my chair, a lot of technical information in this podcast, a lot of insights, a lot of fueling, a lot of important things that again, the, the whole purpose here is so that you have the best possible outcome given your current life, given your current fitness, given where you currently are. And I know many of us want to still achieve a lot of great, exciting things, but we can only train where you are. And we will progress and we will get fitter and we will keep you injury free and we'll continue to move forward. But don't do too much too quickly. Train where you are, gently nudge and bring that body forward. Allow it to recover and rebuild and refuel and absorb the training. Give it that rest. Give it that sleep. Let that fight or flight stress of all day long being on. Give that some time every week or ideally every day to just 
exhale and reset and give your body that re um, recovery mode let's not forget that because it will pay off it will less training but better training will pay off and i know a lot of people say less training chris you do so much volume with people but then once we have a good understanding of their day-to-day -day and what they're adapting to and absorbing and their training load and their life load then we do back off a fair amount and then we do get a better understanding of needing another rest day or a recovery week it shouldn't feel like a slog there's days where the workout itself on the back end might feel like a grind but it shouldn't be a grind this is we all went pro in something other than this so it should be um, something where motivated and excited and joyous to do and when the training moves away from that those are signs that we need to start thinking about well what is it i'm missing what am i not doing right am i fueling am i recovering am i resting am i doing too much am i doing too little right there's definitely times there's many athletes that do too little you know and what is my current best version of myself as an athlete now that might change in a few months, but for now, what is my best version of being an athlete? And I will grow and progress to a new version and a better version and take the lessons and the growth from that and continue to shine as an athlete. Because I believe we're all athletes. We are all athletes in some way. There is an athlete inside of all of you. And it's just a question of us allowing that athlete to come forward, to play a not necessarily always dominant role in our life, but at least a, a role, at least a role in your life and being a part of your day to day, being an athlete as part of your day to day. That's what I truly believe in. So have a great week, everybody. There's also an athlete interview coming up. Um, I recorded that the other day. Um, we talk about race planning and 70.3 uh, strategy and stuff. So I think you'll enjoy that. But until next week, thank you for listening. Um, I've been told that I should have you guys also remember to rate and review the podcast every now and then, whatever that means. And I've been told by um, one of my athletes who uh, manages my website and uh, yeah, in general, if you have feedback on the website, I can just pass it along to him. But um, yeah, and any type of feedback or thoughts you have, send them my way. And um, I'd be glad to continue to answer them here on the podcast. Have a great week, everybody. And I'll see you at or talk to you at episode 103.